Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. My name is Abby Kaufman, and I'll be filling in for Heather Wickline as the host while she's on Parental Week. Today's discussion centers around the future of North American hemp, and who better to join us than Cynthia Patron-Hudak. In addition to serving as an advisor and investor to New Frontier Data, Cynthia is CEO of Hemp Alternative which is a Pennsylvania-based grower of hemp fiber and cultivars focused on sustainable development of industrial hemp products and producing high-end cannabinoid ingredients. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Abby. And of course, we are also joined by the one, the only, John Kagia, New Frontier Data's Chief Knowledge Officer. John, thanks for being back on. Uh, delighted to be here, Abby. Thank you for having us. Awesome, so to kick things off, we will be discussing an article published by Hemp Industry Daily about the new USDA hemp rules. So the US Department of Agriculture recently released hemp production rules. The new rules take effect on March 22nd and notable changes include expanding the harvest window after sampling from 15 to 30 days and raising the negligence threshold from 0.5% THC to 1%. So Cynthia, in your mind, how significant are these changes for hemp producers? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I would say they're not necessarily significant, <laughs> just evolving in the right direction. Um, I, I won't even address the fiber and grain cultivars because I think that's a bit crazy in terms of the requirement, no matter how you look at it, which I'm sure, John, you'll have something to say. But um, you know, I have a 40-year background in process analysis, and when I think about the burden that that any rotational harvest puts upon a farmer, it's difficult. So, you know, most of my analysis have been in processes in financial institutions and healthcare, and, and now with farming, uh, I look at it with a lean process approach, and I believe it's probably the toughest challenge I've ever had to address. So, when you think about uh, the cannabinoid specialty crop, the regulations don't really take into consideration the core fundamentals, um, the fundamental challenges of farming. So think of it as process steps. The, the first step is this plant genetic, right? And it's still very unpredictable. It's even, uh, even the stable genetics and how they perform in our specific regions are still in discovery. So um, that's the first step of the process that leaves a, a little variability. But then if you look at a typical specialty crop farmer, you have to plan out your field and then you plan the crops in that field and then you're planning the crop maintenance schedule, which now you have to start lining up resources, right? So your nutrients and, and the labor for maybe trimming and then you plan out your harvest window. Again, another set of resources, whether it's labor, equipment, facility needs. Um, and so hemp is just one, one of many products they're juggling. And in most cases, because it's a new opportunity and they're folding it into the mix, it's not really their bread and butter crop, but there's uh, throughout the summer, you know, hemp equipment, the, the, the equipment breaks, or you may have labor hurdles, no matter what crop you're doing, it could be uh, migrant help or COVID challenges with labor pools. And then don't forget, there's this whole variable of mother nature, right? So you have the sun and the rain and the wind, which it can have damaging effects to plants or facilities or equipment. So now all of a sudden you're going to throw in this whole new step, right? Which is called testing. And you're going to test every 30 
days. So the sub tasks within that process stage include, you know, working on the paperwork to get your testing set up, the timing challenges with the labs and finding a really good lab partner, maybe something you do pre-season, but uh, hanging on to that lab partner and making sure that you're getting results back in a timely fashion and then you have to get approval by the authority to harvest. And now all of a sudden you get your approval and you're back to, well, do I have my resources lined up, my team, my equipment, what harvest process I'm going to follow and basically where am I going to store it? So, um, you know, not all the plants uh, ripen at the same time, right? So think of a tomato. Am I going to, am I going to, you know, harvest all the tomatoes today, or I'm going to look for the the best day to harvest that. And so that could easily push you into another rotational harvesting. So I think it's putting this unnecessary burden on our farmers. And somebody understands something because that's evidenced by the fact that they're raising the negligence from 0.5 to one, but not enough to sort of totally give us the ability to have a lean process and that type of approach uh, with our farming of cannabinoid plants from from beginning to end. Um, Does does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. Um, John, is there anything you want to add to that about the significance there? Yeah, I really want to underscore something that Cynthia has just said that, you know, I think particularly those who are coming at this from the marijuana side of the of the industry, where, you know, from the outset, that's, that part of the market has been very uh, accustomed to uh, extremely stringent regulations and, and very kind of regimented testing. Uh, I think it's really worth uh, understanding how different uh, the experience is for hemp growers who are coming in generally from agriculture. These people who, who are working in uh, with who have generally worked historically with crops that are far less regulated, and and the layers layers of complexity that this introduces into their agricultural processes, and uh, with complexity comes risk. I think is um, is worth understanding. I, I completely agree that clearly the, the, the USDA. Um, heard some of the concerns being voiced. Um, I, I think the 0.5 threshold uh, for THC, um, uh, at which point if you tested above that, um, uh, you would have been considered negligent and it would have put your, your licensing at risk or your, your, your crop at risk. Uh, why the, the, the level up there um, is notable um, is, you know, it almost fails to account for the practical reality that this is a plant, this is nature, and critically that for a lot of growers and for a lot of cultivars, they're being grown in places where um, they're being tested out for the first time. So um, it, at that 0.5 threshold, it just gave really, really little room or little margin for error. Um, now, 1% is an improvement, but for a lot of growers who are dealing with nature at its finest, you know, um, you know, we, we, we just spent quite a bit of time doing some research around uh, the effect of drought stresses on uh, stimulating increased cannabinoid production in some uh, cannabis cultivars. Well, think about the implications of that. If uh, about half the U.S. Ex- is experiencing now persistent drought-like conditions, what does that do to the hemp growers who are growing uh, hemp in those environments and the ability to maintain that? Uh, 0.3 threshold on on their um, on their on their crop. So the the increase up to 0.1 uh, to one percent THC before you deem negligent is an improvement. Um, but I, I don't want to suggest that uh, the hemp 
farmers are out of the woods yet. This um, yeah. this is still a fairly stringent environment. Yeah, I think, I think two two points, you know, um, it's been interesting for me, not born and raised a farmer, to watch these families of farmers. And I say families because, you know, everyone's involved and to see them sort of, uh, they're, they're, they're their own entrepreneurs, right? They're out in the field and they're tackling their plan in the way that they believe is most effective and efficient for their customers buying their produce or whatever. And then all of a sudden you throw in this wrench, right? That, oh, wait, you can't touch that plant until you test it. And then you've got to harvest it in 30 days. And, you know, now all of a sudden they they have to figure out how to get all the resources together in order to do it in that window. So like a, a good example is I had a farmer last year who lost like 75 to 80% of his biomass, oil production and quality based on the fact that um, he couldn't line all his resources up in that window. Now, granted, it was 15 days and not 30, but um, I don't think he even lined them up in 30. I had to retest, and that's because his other crops were maturing at times that might have been a slightly off because of the weather that he originally had planned. And so, um, you know, they're going to save their traditional crops. That's their bread and butter until we get this thing figured out. And so I, I think there's a big risk there. You know, if the lawmakers could get out in the field and understand what their constituents are up against, it's uh, it's a real eye opener. It, it's been for me um, in terms of how to get that variability down so that you can improve process. And, and what's that lead to? It leads to our ability to sort of um, reduce the cost, right? Increase the quality, reduce the cost, which is going to allow us to even be sort of competitive in, in the marketplace. Absolutely. And you mentioned you know, some of these requirements kind of throwing a wrench in plans. Um, an additional requirement which did not change in these new roles is the need for hemp to be tested at a DEA certified lab. So as, you know, someone that's in the farming community, the hemp cultivation growing side yourself, Cynthia, um, just how onerous is this testing requirement for farmers? Yeah, so so not only is it onerous, but it's very expensive. So um, the harvest window is a hurdle. I spent probably the same amount in 2020 as I did in 2019, and I only grew half the plants. And that's because of this 15-day window, right? And I don't know if many farmers did what I did, but I was religious about it. And I harvested and I would look at the plants that to me were ready. And, um, you know, I had experts helping me and those that weren't, we left in. And then another 15 days, another test. And we had multiple fields. So I spent maybe five, $6,000 a year in, in testing. And when you look at that in terms of your budget uh, each year as you sit back, it's it's expensive and our timing needs and our volumes of tests are very challenging even for the labs right so I had three different labs with errors last year that that I caught and so I don't know how many farmers aren't catching lab errors um, but I was I was diligent about it because I was very concerned about you know getting my um, uh, violations and then not being being told I can't grow for five years. And, uh, you know, and I was doing some new genetic work here on the East Coast, which, you know, works against the fact that it's even more variable and, and you're this risk of violation. But when I think about now, now I'm in year three and I have lab partners sort of filtered out, right? I've been filtering out the ones that I feel are the ones I want to, you know, basically become partners with for the rest of my my seasons. And 
all of a sudden a DEA certification wrench comes in. So now if my favorites don't end up getting their DEA certification, I'm back to the drawing board. So think about this lean process again, okay? I finally started getting some partners that I think that over time we can build like a, you know, a nice, smooth working relationship to cut out the waste and really start to speak the same language. And now, lo and behold, I could be revisiting that for my most important supplier, which is my lab supplier. Um, so, you know, pivot, well, we have no choice. We have to pivot. But uh, it, it, again, in this regulatory hotbed and emerging industry, it takes a long time to get a good supply chain partner. And so uh, as these as these regulations change, it sort of sets sets us back. Absolutely. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And John, what are your thoughts about the lack of change with the testing requirement with the DEA labs? You know, I almost think it's one of the unfortunate byproducts of um, the federal state tension between uh, cannabis legality at the state level versus uh, its illegality at the federal level. Um, you know, there are hundreds of labs in this country that are doing uh, excellent work. Uh, we, in fact, we're literally about to produce a report about the lab testing environment and uh, showing uh, through uh, um, with a partnership with Emerald Scientific, which is an organization that accredits um, uh, labs for uh, excellent performance in the proficiency testing, the proficiency of the testing. Um, you know, it, it, and we see that over time, over the past few years, um, the, the accuracy and the precision of lab testing in this, in this country for cannabis has gone up dramatically. But essentially what this rule is saying is that you know, the vast majority of the labs in this country that have been perfecting the art of testing over the past few years are now not going to be able to serve this market because uh, of the very resource-intensive, the very cost costly process of becoming DEA certified. So it does two things on, on two sides of the market. One, it creates an additional layer of complexity for the hemp farmer because, as Cynthia has uh, beautifully articulated, um, you know, for every grower who, who had just started to find the sea legs, it thrusts you into an entirely new round of trying to find the best provider. But two, it adds cost because it dramatically narrows down the competitive environment of labs that you can use. Um, uh, while there's this entirely parallel set of labs that are serving uh, and effectively serving the, the uh, marijuana market uh, and that are accredited and, and certified at the state level. So, you know, it's, we hope that some of these issues will, will be addressed as we lurch towards some, some level of federal normalization. Um, but to me, this idea of you know hemp because it is federally legal can only be tested in federally uh, regulated labs um, uh, is one unfortunate byproduct uh, in an environment when when there are more than adequate, more than ample suitable substitutes. Uh, but because uh, those labs are tested in marijuana, which remains federally legal, uh, I'm sure played part of it DA and uh, uh, USDA's decision not to allow hemp testing through those through those organizations. Um, an unfortunate byproduct of the ecosystem that we're in, um, and unfortunately, it's going to drive uh, higher costs for the hemp growers in this process. Yeah, and and anxiety, right? Like I think that was my biggest challenge last year was this it's out of your hands. I mean, it's just the lab process running smoothly can make or break and it's our money that we've put into these plants, right? And our labor and our time and all of a sudden you're sort of 
at someone else's mercy, that they can get the material, they can process it correctly, they get the result back in time. The ag department can release the harvest and then boom, you can mobilize everybody to get it out of the ground in time. And so it's, um, you know, it's, it's an unnecessary burden, but one that is very, very stressful when it's your money at stake. And I think, um, you know, a lot of farmers feel that it's a shame. And so speaking of time, before we move on to the, a little bit more optimistic topic, um, with the new rule taking effect in March, enforcement won't begin until the end of next year. So in addition to all the other constraints we've discussed, do you believe, Cynthia, that um, that is enough time for producers to pivot to this new regulatory paradigm? So it's it's all about... Um it's all about the the homework that you do, you know, and, and how, how you have to plan ahead. And you have to be looking at that right now. And you need to be talking to labs and as to whether they're going down this DEA certification path or not. Um, and, you know, for luckily in, in my scenario, I, I partnered with a fourth generation farmer and I partnered with a specialty crop farmer who has 35 years of experience. And so they can move forward on the deliverables of their season while I work behind the scenes developing these relationships and I, I don't know how a farmer does it without a business partner um, and, and vice versa a business partner couldn't do without a farmer and so I think it will in in essence sort of starts to weed out those who can really play um, and play within the the compliance requirements um, which which is again you know a shame because I think the farmers should be able to maneuver through this without having a business partner sort of like you know leading the way. Anything you'd like to add John? No I think um, Cynthia nailed it. I, the, the, there are going to be quite a number of folks who have not been following this closely and don't understand the amount of additional work it's going to create to get through the coming season. So I, I suspect um, uh, that it may have an impact on how many farmers end up participating in, uh, um, or how many farmers and how they participate in the upcoming season. Excellent. And that's actually a perfect segue um, to the next, speaking of the number of uh, participants, uh, our next article we're going to discuss is from, also from Hemp Industry Daily. The title is Hemp Licenses Up, But Acreage Down in 2020, Yet Industry is Optimistic for Growth. So considering the challenges hemp farmers have faced, it's understandable that acreage fell in 2020. But at the same time, the United States set a record issuing roughly 20,000 hemp cultivation licenses, suggesting that farmers are still interested in hemp, even as some resources are diverted away from the cash crop. So Cynthia, we'll start with you again. Um, what are some of the implications of this divergent trend? Essentially, there are more growers and licenses, but fewer acres. Yeah, so I'm smiling because John knows my perspective on this out of the gate, which is, you know, uh, I'm not sure economists can use licenses up to mean anything at this stage of the game. I mean, people pull them and grow nothing or they pull them and they grow the minimal amount um, based on the state law. I mean, and further down the supply chain, if you pull a permit for processing, we know that means it could be a guy in his garage, right? So not like what we would consider or sort of a supply chain partner for processing. So I think some of those, um, you know, the source of the data needs to be taken into consideration because we're still just this emerging market and the data is not really solid. But what we can talk about is sort of the 
what I hope is the um, is the direction of this, which is we're weeding through the people who just thought they could get a quick return on their buck, right? And now we're finding the people who are doing smaller things, but that are very research oriented. And the goal of that is then to take the research and educate, right? And can you educate the lawmakers? Can you educate other farmers who are interested in eventually putting you know their their toe in the water um and i think all of that is is very important now there may be there may be players who are continuing to build their inventory for cbd for instance which i i think is key um if you have the money to do it keep building your inventory but in essence it's it's hopefully this shift and i think the other piece of this is you don't know if those licenses are for fiber or grain or cannabinoids in most cases right and so um the licenses in fiber and grain could be, mean very different things i i still think it's a great opportunity to do research you know we have um multiple plots going on where we're evaluating its impact to the environment we're developing sustainable products um but again, it's it's really understanding sort of um, what can we do with what we're given, and research and education is is kind of the the short critical path in my mind. Uh, what do you think, John? So, so one, I agree with you on, on the data, and and you know we we talked about this at, at length over the past couple of years, um, but but I do think we are seeing two things. One is. At the outset of federal hemp legalization, a part of the reason why there was such intense interest, I think, in the space is there was this idea that it's, a, it's going to be a much less regulated environment than marijuana. So if you were concerned about going into the high THC environment, um, hemp would be a much easier environment um, both to get into uh, as well as to, to build scale because of the outlook that we saw for uh, the, the emerging CBD environment. Um, but I think there's been kind of two things that have challenged those assumptions. One, as we've just discussed around the DEA rules, yes, it's maybe less regulated than uh, than the high THC environment, but it doesn't mean it's regulation free in, in, in some respects um, because of the, the way in which these uh, regulations are being structured. Um, uh, it adds a layer of profound complexity on the hemp side. So to Cynthia's point about, you know, the business uh, partners needing uh, really kind of uh, sophisticated growers to be able to make this, or farmers to be able to make this work, um, because it, it is a challenging environment and a ch challenging set of regulatory protocols in which to be effective. Uh, and then two, you know, for all of the opportunity and potential that exists on the CBD side, there's a lot of kind of both infrastructure along the supply chain that needs to be built, um, uh, retail capacity that needs to be established, and then three, consumer education that still needs to be done. And while long term, we think the, the opportunity for CBD is going to be very robust, um, you know, that, that foundational work still hasn't been done, which I think has been part of the reason why um, the, the, the speed at which the U.S. CBD market opportunity has grown uh, has been slower than uh, uh, many had anticipated. So you take those two things together, uh, a more robust regulatory environment than many had anticipated. This is not growing tomatoes by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and then two, uh, a slower to uh, mature consumer environment in terms of the pool uh, for the products that were being produced. Um, and, and as a result of that, I think you have folks kind of taking a step back and saying, um, let's reassess how much we're producing and uh, specific what specific applications we're producing for. Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. And John, you kind of touched on um, the next thing I wanted to, to raise with both of you is you talked about how CBD is kind of received more attention. It's been kind of a major driver for investment in hemp, while like hemp fiber and grain products are they're starting to receive increasing tension. So with that being said, which hemp sector are you most interested in watching? Well, I, I don't know if I have a favorite, but um, I do think the long game is the fiber and the grain. And again, you know, we need funding to be in the R&D se section to um, develop our supply chains for that. And the regulatory challenges they're barriers, right? So think about um, a product, a plastic product that we might try to replace with a fiber sustainable based product. Those processes are lean and they've been, um, the waste has been weeded out of them for years and years and years. And so now all of a sudden here we are trying to do R&D and product development with a fiber and granted, you know, we'll save the earth, but people don't want to pay more for that, right? You have to be able to get your economy a scale down and compete with that plastic product in, in most cases. So um, I think that's the more fascinating part of the industry to watch. Um, however, I, you know, I have a, um, a background in, in healthcare IT and I've watched for years this uh, alternative medicine develop. So I think that's fascinating too, in terms of the research and the findings around it. But when I think sort of process and supply chain development. It's the fiber work and the grain work that just has a tremendous opportunity. And we're seeing that, well, you know, the USDA has a great grant out now that a lot of folks are applying for and really trying to understand sort of how do we get that momentum for, for a lean process in, in product development that can show sort of sustainable and, and the grain products are, you know, terrific for protein and can we get costs down um, for those? So we could feed America, right? So John, your thoughts? So, so I think I see the fiber and grain opportunity as almost like a bifurcated, in a bifurcated way. First on the fiber opportunity, um, one, I think, profoundly compelling, and one of the reasons why I think it's so timely that we're having this conversation is, um, given that I think it's within two or three weeks, the Biden administration, as part of its uh, weekly rollout of major initiatives that they intend to tackle in, uh, in the first year, um, they're going to be addressing climate change. And I think the opportunity for hemp to be a, a kind of to play a critical role, at least a key role, uh, in the broader discussion around more sustainable solutions, not just for agriculture, uh, but for the multitude of other ways in which uh, hemp can be uh, applied, whether it's to plastics, to textiles, to building materials, to um, uh, uh, supercapacitors and other um, uh, computing technologies. Um, you know, there are all of these potential applications um, which have been explored, but to Cynthia's point, have not yet been, been scaled. And if we're about to go through um, at least two years, if not four years, of an administration that's going to be very intentional in, in investing in uh, climate change-related solutions, um, I think this is going to be one of the most exciting opportunities or windows for uh, investment and innovation around hemp. Um, because there's enough market awareness that there's potential here, um, and this will be a great way to, to find public-private partnerships to accelerate that innovation, to make these technologies or solutions more competitive with existing technologies. 
On the seed side, though, um, I'm actually thinking about that more in the context of serving the global developing market. Um, if, if through much of the developing world, malnutrition and undernutrition remain uh, critical challenges, uh, the idea that you know, hemp can not only help stimulate new econ economic growth, uh, but really bring kind of life-saving sustenance to um, uh, some of these kind of developing economies uh, and do so uh, with a crop whose uh, seed is a superfood, which has a phenomenal uh, nutritional profile and who, once harvested, can all the, the rest of the plant can be used for all of these other uh, low-tech needing applications. Um, I, I think as, as part of the potential for hemp uh, as a catalyst for uh, sustainable human development as well as sustainable economic development in the developing world. So um, I think fiber in the developed world and in the U.S. in particular over the next few years um, will be really exciting to see if we can start catalyzing some investment and innovation uh, there. Um, and then for the lower tech um, but more kind of human development side, uh, see for the developing world, I think is going to be uh, just phenomenal and, and underexplored potential. Absolutely. As always, very well put, John. So to kind of wrap things up, I know there's, it sounds like there's so much potential for the hemp industry going forward and there's a lot of optimism, uh, but also a lot of room for improvement. Um, so to kind of wrap things up, Cynthia, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share about where the hemp market might be heading in 2021? Yeah, um, so I guess in my mind, I'm hoping it's heading more towards mainstream <laughs> and uh, our right to address this opportunity as any other industry can. Um, I, I love to come back after April 1st and share with you our application for the USDA. Um, you know, we've pulled together nine companies um, and, and those companies are covering sort of this fiber and sustainable product to, you know, how do we improve farming of hemp and then also kind of tying in the grain and and the food supply source. And when I work on this application with these nine companies, I feel like I'm in the mainstream. Like we all feel like we're trying to work within mainstream. And so it's looking for the investment money. It's looking for documenting process and improving it and uh, understanding from our learnings how we continue to develop great products and, and services for that matter, around this industry. But at the end of the day, we need that regulatory support, right? We need we need that to continue to evolve. So um, I'm hoping in 2021 that continues to happen. Awesome. And what about you, John? Any, any trends or any final thoughts about hemp going into 2021? Well, you know, I feel like we've been talking about CBD for so long that we almost forget that the kind of nationally legal hemp market is actually still very, very small and very immature. Um, and so, you know, but, but the speed at which it is maturing is reflected in the sorts of themes that Cynthia has been uh, discussing here. You know, you're seeing much more sophisticated thinking about how to uh, navigate this regulatory environment. The government has finally come around and, uh, and is thinking in a more accommodating way, not perfect, but in, in a more accommodating way about how to allow this industry room to breathe as it comes into its own. So I think 2021 has a potential to be a catalytic year. If we see this convergence of um, effective uh, licensing and, and uh, you know, the kind of a, a good base of mature operators on the cultivation side, 
coupled with um, much more uh, conscientious thinking about the opportunity that hemp could provide could play as a um, as a sustainable solution to some of the critical environmental or climate change related challenges we face. Um, I think there's a, there's a real chance we'll start seeing some catalytic investments into this space um, and some, some greater kind of pull from consumers who are more conscientious about the impact that they're having on the environment and they're trying to find uh, better solutions out there. And I'll just jump in real quick, John, because I'm starting to see, you know, I'm getting the phone call about, um, you know, do you want to be on the Pennsylvania Hemp and Industrial Hemp Steering Committee? And then I'm, you know, at the county level, do you want to get more involved and represent the hemp industry at the county level to make sure that we're continuing to educate those who are setting up the rules? And, um, you know, I, that's a good sign, right? Because the governing bodies around us see the opportunity. And we have ag development councils who are now focused on roadmaps that include hemp. I mean, look at the USDA app that I'm telling you about. You know, that grant includes specific language around hemp. So we're starting to see it. And I think we'll, we'll, able, we'll be able to embrace it as the year moves on. And, you know, we had Representative Chrissy Houlihan come out to our farm in 2020 uh, to understand hemp and, and they contacted us. So it's exciting to kind of see people getting engaged and saying, let's really take this seriously and move forward. So that's what we're hoping for in 2021. Sounds like there is hope for 2021. And um, <laughs> thank you both so much for joining us, um, Cynthia, John, and thank you for listening. Um, thank you for joining us at Canna Week. Please be sure to like and subscribe the podcast. Um, if you have not already signed up for our free weekly newsletter, we do have a hemp newsletter that goes out weekly. You can sign up at newfrontierdata.com slash newsletter dash sign up. I'm your host, Abby Kaufman, and I look forward to seeing you next week. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.